6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8, through 5, verse 1. And so today, what they do in a Jewish wedding is they break a wine glass, and that is a part of a Jewish wedding ceremony today. And what most people don't, may not know, that's intended to symbolize the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And uh, even on the occasion of a Jew's happiest day, the day of his wedding, Jerusalem must be remembered. That's the flavor. And uh, many people, are, if you've been, or been at or witnessed a Jewish wedding, you know about the bringing of the glass. Many people may not know why do they do that. That's the reason. At this point, the wedding ceremony occurs. The wedding banquet was reflected back in uh, chapter 1, you may recall. Fo- the following reflection describes, though, again, in vastly more detail, the wedding night itself. For many people, this is the peak of the entire opera, the peak of the the program here. The earlier reflection, that was the third reflection of the wedding night, was from the Shulamite. This, which is the seventh reflection, is from the groom's point of view. And except for one verse, it is he that's doing all the speaking. And so we're moving into the seventh reflection, the wedding night, chapter 4, verse 1. He begins with a sevenfold praise of her beauty, And I might pause right here to remind you, this passage, the whole book, but certainly this passage, is one of the most uncomfortable ones for many, especially pastors trying to teach this from a pulpit. This is one of the reasons that the rabbis didn't let someone read the book, the Song of Songs, unless he was over 30. It is candidly, you cannot escape the fact it is very sensual, it is very graphic, it is very direct in its way, and uh, just be prepared for that. Uh, we might say this is going to be rated X, if you will. But moving on. Verse 1, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as the flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Now, right away, we begin to realize the idioms that they're using are foreign to our culture and our ears. They're in an agriculture and agrarian economy. Um, they are, uh, their lives were continually confronted with the husbandry issues of different uh, animals and so forth. So their, their idioms of comparison are strange to our ears. Thou hast dove's eyes. I don't think you're going to go home and tell your wife she's got eyes like a dove. She won't know what you're talking about. And uh, uh, hair like a flock of goats, that, that sounds that does not sound appealing to us. It was to them. And so we want to get into this here. Four times he's going to declare her fair, that she's very fair, meaning she's without spot. That, by the way, is one of the key messages throughout this whole opera, is that he, 
views her as absolutely perfect, that without spot, without blemish. And uh, so, and he says, within thy locks, see, behind the veil is what it really means. It was customary for a bride to be veiled on the wedding night. And that's one of the reasons that prostitutes were veiled when they, did, when they applied their craft, as you may have noticed from some of the Bible stories. The goats in Israel. Syrian goats were mostly black with silken hair. Very attractive hair, strangely enough. On a steep slope, giving the appearance of hanging down on the sides of the cliff is the, is the, is the flavor here. As a, your hair is like a flock of goats. We would find that offensive. It's used in a context of a compliment. And he, he's starting working her from top down. Seven statements he's going to make about her, each one in the superlative. And this one's like a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. That's a positive thing in this culture. The slopes of Mount Gilead rising from the Jordan Valley are very bare with a brown uh, bronze collar. And in that same sense, hair is a woman's glory, we're told in the New Testament. Thy hair is a flock of goats. Hair speaks of two things. It speaks of consecration and it speaks of submission. The Nazarites were not to cut their hair as a sign of their commitment, number six. Remember Samson, same thing. That's why his hair is so important in the career of Samson, because he was a Nazarite. That was a symbol of his commitment. And Paul alluded to the long hair of women as her glory in 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn. Well, most of us are not familiar with the clean whiteness of a freshly shorn sheep. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing, whereof every one bear twins and none is barren among them. So her teeth are matched pair, like matched pearls or something. Sheep washed shorn and white, matched, none missing. A set of pearls half hidden in the mouth is the way he's describing her teeth. These are not idioms that we would probably pick up to emulate in our culture because we're in a different culture. But in their culture, this is the way, this is the most extreme way he could find to communicate these things. And by the way, teeth also speak of our ability to assimilate the truth. And that you start building, you start getting into allegorical issues here then. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of pomegranate within thy locks. This thread of scarlet should echo Rahab's salvation in the Battle of Jericho. It also should echo, it will echo, the scarlet thread from Genesis chapter 3, God's commitment to a Redeemer, all the way to seeing his vesture and blood in Revelation 19. We're going to deal with some of the allegorical issues separately so we don't break the stride, the, the emotional and, 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 and the, the portrayal of what we have here in chapter 4 especially. So we're going to deal with that in a subsequent session and get back, we'll double back on some of these allegorical issues and there will be some surprises in that, I believe. And the pomegranate. We don't probably traffic in pomegranates that much. Their redness is uh, tempered with a ruby color. They're mentioned over 30 times in the Bible, used as an indication of rank in the hem of a garment in Exodus 28 and 29. The Levites, you see, in, in their culture, the hem of your garment is where you embroidered your, your rank in the society, your genealogy, your, your role. We, we think of stripes on a sleeve of an airline captain or something. They had their, that all emblazoned on the hem of the garment. And we find pomegranates are an indication of rank on the hem of a garment. 
They were also emblazoned on the temple. 1 Kings 7, 2 Kings 25, Jeremiah 52. You find these echoes of the pomegranate, a highly venerated symbol. Uh, and uh, is there a temple pun here? We'll talk about that when we get to the allegories. But um, pomegranate has a circular calyx at the end that looks sort of like a little crown. And a tradition claims that Solomon used it as a model for the one he wore. That's, that's the tradition we have. The leaves are shiny, dark green. Flowers are coral and waxy. The fruits make a syrup called grenadine. Moving on. Thy neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, whereupon they hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Now, <laughs> this isn't the kind of compliment you might give your wife, but here it was intended to be, having a long neck adorned with ornaments. Shields were often hung on tower walls. And uh, we, from here you can springboard into allegories too with the armor of God and so forth. But moving on here. Solomon made 200 golden targets and 300 golden shields. And they were put in the house of the forest of Lebanon. 1 Kings 10. And they served that served as the royal armory. And it may have been known as the Tower of David. So that may tie to this verse, if you will. These shields were later carried away by Pharaoh Shishak at the time of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who then replaced him with brass shields for his bodyguard to use. So these were idioms familiar in the, in, back in that day and complementary, although they would sound strange to us, of course. Then he continues, Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Soft, attracting, stroking. Having described the sevenfold beauty of his bride from top down, eyes, hair, teeth, mouth, temples, neck, breasts, he anticipates their first intercourse. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. This is what in other literature would be called the Mount of Venus. He's approaching the pubic area, if you will. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. He is totally satisfied with his bride. And this is the key message throughout the book. One of the primary purposes of this book is to show you how our shepherd king sees you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinir and Hermon, from the lion's den, from the mountains of the leopards, from the peak of whatever, in other words. Travel to travel to ecstatic heights. He's also the God of the second chance, by the way. The first time he said, come, let's go up to the mountains, she put him off and lost the moment. But he comes back and says, let's go for it. And they do. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister bride. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. Strange words, sister bride, or spouse. It's, it's bride for the first time in that, uh, in that nomenclature here. The Hebrew word comes from a root which means to pierce through and carries the meaning of that which is brought to completion. Putting the two concepts together, the Hebrew word used for bride refers to one who has reached the goal of her womanly calling, that of becoming a sexual partner to her husband, thus perfectly comp completing herself and him. This is the redoing, really, of the creation of Eve. Eve was taken from the side of Adam 
Adam was split in two in effect, the male and the female, Mr. and Mrs. Adam. And this is the, the uh, reunion of that, in a sense. That's what, that was God's design. And because it's God's design is one reason he treats it so majestically and so strictly, because that reunion, that union is holy. It says, how fair is my love, my sister bride. How much better is thy love than wine, the smell of thine ointments than all spices. The word here, of course, is dod, the sexual love. The foreplay begins. Previously, he used the word yafu for beautiful, referring to visual impression, beautiful in the visual sense. Here, the word better is actually a different word, tovu, which he describes his physical experience with her. Not visually, he is experiencing her. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as honeycomb. Honey and milk are under my tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. Now, the word Lebanon means something different today. I'll come back. The description is based on experience, not on sight alone, in other words. Previously, her lips were described by their color in accordance with how they appeared to his sight. Now, however, he is describing them according to his physical experience with them. The senses of taste and smell are intricately involved, not just visual here. Okay, and uh, Lebanon is going to come up again, so I'll leave that for now. A garden enclosed is my, my sister, my spouse. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. He's describing the female gentles in terms of a garden that's not unusual in literature of the ancient world. Sealed, locked, access only to the rightful owner, in other words, a virgin. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, campfire, and spikenard. This is all for arousal. The word orchard, I'm going to talk more about when we get to allegories, but the, uh, the orchard of pomegranates, the word is pardis. It, it's a foreign word, Persian actually, for the word paradise. Spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes of all chief spices. The vocabulary of exaltation here is in the spice realm, obviously. Saffron was obtained from the crocus in Israel and used as an ornament. Calamus was a plant with a reed-like stem and tawny color imported from India. Cinnamon came from the East Indies and aloes from India. And uh, the spikenard we talked about before came from the Himalayas. Very expensive stuff. A fountain of garden. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. Feel the flowing going here. Sprouting from within. Thus Shalomit up to now has been a virgin. It is her that Solomon now passionately desires, and only by her will he be satisfied. He describes the lubrication process which will allow for the satisfaction of what he now desires. That's what's going on here. At this point, the bride speaks. Up till now, it's been him. At this point, she speaks. Awake, O north wind, and come thou, come thou south. Blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Wow. North and south winds don't mean much to us because we're not probably that sensitive to it in an agricultural environment. The west wind brings rain. The east wind brings hot. It's hot and withering. The north wind clears the air with cool breezes. And the south wind brings the warmness that causes things to grow. So the north and south are favorable each in their way. The north-south winds promote growth if they come and interchange at the proper times. 
As a result, the entire garden becomes a sea of incense and fragrance, blowing out its odor with fragrant plants. The Northern may be blowing to teach us to walk by faith and not by feeling, to demonstrate our love for him through diligence, not tingly feelings or the like. Feelings are fickle. They are affected by what you ate, by what someone said this morning, by media, the weather, current news. Not so with faith. It is totally independent on the circumstances. And that's a parallel we'll talk about in a, in a, se in a later session. So we get to the climactic verse, the first verse of chapter 5. I am come into my garden, my sister bride. I have gathered my myrrh and my, with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O oh friends, drink. Yea, drink abundantly, O oh beloved. By the way, the spice that he's referring to is the balsam that was brought to Solomon in abundance by the Queen of Sheba in that visit in 1 Kings 10. All these phrases simply point to the pinnacle of full enjoyment and satisfaction. This pronounces sanction on the wedding union and encourages them, now that they are husband and wife, to be drunk with sexual pleasure. That's the calling. That's the command. And uh, we have this strange phrase added here. Eat, O friends, drink. Yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. That's neither one of them, really. Many uh, commentators presume that's a refrain from the daughters of Jerusalem in this opera. Very, very reasonable uh, presumption. There's another possibility that some of them is, have suggested. This may be the words of God himself. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly. It's intended clearly to be a sanctioning blessing on the whole process. And where it comes from, whether it's echoed by the daughters of Jerusalem or whether it's intended to be God himself in some special way is a form of conjecture. It's clearly the centerpiece of the entire opera. From chapter 1, verse 2 to 4.15, we have the prelude from chapter, the second verse of chapter 5 to the end. Right in the middle of this, we have clearly, physically, literally, the centerpiece of the entire opera. There are 111 lines prior to this. There's 111 lines subsequent to this. And so it is, the point I like to highlight here is that it's a deliberate design. When you encounter something like that, it gets your attention and causes you to treat all the other pieces with respect because they're there just as deliberately. And so I want to remind you of Hebrews 13.4. Let's go to the New Testament and get a corroboration here. The writer of the Hebrews says, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. And this is a key point for those that might have hesitancy in enjoying sex in marriage. Many people in marriage, Christians especially, may be hesitant because in our culture, we have made sex a dirty word. Outside the marriage, it is abused every possible way by our entertainment industry, by our cultural idioms, what have you. No, this is a key point. The bed undefiled. The word bed here in the Greek is koite, coitus. It's referring to sexual intercourse. It's undefiled in marriage. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Ooh. Understand it's black and white. There's no gray area. There's a sharp line here. In marriage, great. Peak. Fabulous. Outside, serious stuff. 
The two previous applications of, of the reflections are emphasized here. The importance of verbalizing to your mate what you're about, uh, 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 what you like about your mate. Do you do that every day? You told your, how, how long has it been since you told your wife you loved her? Or even better, have highlighted something very special that's true, that's sincere, and yet positive. The frequency with which this has been emphasized here in the opera shows the importance of this aspect to the marriage relationship. Don't take that for granted. Most guys do. Gee, I told her I loved her when we got married. Wait a minute. That's something you should be doing every day. Find a way to do that every day. A second application repeated is the importance of learning proper foreplay for the purpose of arousing passions for the total enjoyment of the second act. Never should be routine. It should be an event with skill and attention and deliberation. The third application focuses on the importance of virginity. Shulamit entered the marriage as a virgin totally reserved for her mate. We live in a day where loose morality and the existence of virgins at the time of marriage is becoming more and more rare, tragically. Many single Christians today have already lost their virginity before accepting Christ. And this is one area that you can't rectify exactly. But at the same time, if one finds himself or herself in this position, it's necessary to remember that the believer is now a new creature in Christ. And all sins have been forgiven. Let's not lose sight of that. That's the reality. That's, the That's why it's called the good news. Once one has been purified by Christ and is now to act as if one is still a virgin and reserved totally for the future mate. There's no reason you can't do that. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's effectually the same thing because Christ took care of that on that cross. It's impossible to become a virgin again, of course, but one can become as one from this point on and enter into all the joys of sexual union at marriage. That's available. Well, a fourth application comes from her recognition that she had been, that he, uh, what had been her garden was now his. We use the garden idiom for that from his point of view. Her body, especially sexually, was now his, and his was now hers. That exchange is crucial, and it's biblical. That's the same point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 7, first five verses. Check it out. The lesson is that one mate has the obligation of sexually satisfying the other mate because the ownership of the body has been transferred to the other at marriage. You are no longer your own. You are each the other's. And that's real. That's serious. That should be recognized. Withholding sexual satisfaction from a mate is forbidden in the Scripture. So, okay, we've just been through part one of a two-part book. Part two of the book is going to discuss two areas of adjustment. The first is the area of sexual problems that arise in the marriage, and this is going to be the issue in what we call the fourth idol. And the second area of adjustment concerns experimentation with new types and new acts of sexual activity in the marriage, and this is the concern of the fifth and final idol. So that's forthcoming. So we've been through the first three idols of five, 13 reflections, but organized as five idols. We've been through three of them. Next time, we're going to take on the fourth and fifth idol. And uh, that's a total of six different uh, reflections, um, from seven all the way to 13.
that right, Sigil? And uh, so for next time, you've got an ambitious amount of reading to do for our next session. I want you to study the rest of the book, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, next time. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for this incredible design that you have made us aware of, the marriage, the sexual union of two, that uh, just as Adam and Eve were designed for each other, so the husband and wife were designed for each other. And Father, we recognize the sanctity of that union. And we thank you, Father, for the ecstasy that's available in that union. Father, we would just pray that through your Holy Spirit and through diligence in your word, that we might more fully apprehend that which you have here for us. And also, Father, we also thank you for the gift of our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on that cross paid for all our sins so that all our shortcomings, whatever they may be, were paid for by him, who sees us the way the bridegroom sees the bride, total free of fault, because that cross allows him to take on all our imperfections, all our sins. Oh, Father, we would pray that through your Holy Spirit you would help us understand the extremes that you've gone to not only to create us in the first place, but to redeem us from the predicament we find ourselves in. We thank you, Father, and we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our bridegroom, our shepherd king, indeed. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.